The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean, and president of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day to you, Stephen. And it's an exciting week, I think, as we've alerted people. This is the first week of classes. We are up and running in Monterey, San Luis Obispo, and Bakersfield this week. We are, Mitch. You know, I moved to a different classroom. Did you get the memo? I did not know that. What did yeah. you what what happened? I moved to the classroom that's got the library area in the back, and I'm still trying to figure out a way to work that in. Well, you, you know, that's going to be a more challenging classroom because those chairs are more comfortable. You're going to have to keep them awake. Okay. <laughs> I'm on notice. But yeah, it's great. We've got a good uh, first year class. Uh, I think I've got 17 students in the class. Yeah, I think it's it's really, we met our numbers in all three of our locations, which uh, law schools across the country cannot all say, uh, generally speaking, you know, we don't really plug law school as often as we probably should, but... Uh, in particularly in light of today's topic, when we talk about domestic terrorism and hate crimes and and criminal justice, uh, we do believe we're going to start to see an increase in people coming to law school across the country as these type of concerns get down into the communities. Uh, but we haven't seen it over the last few years, so I think it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, that's true, Mitch. I remember seeing a study a while back, and I can't remember who commissioned it, but there was definitely empirical data on spikes in attendance in law schools as it relates to, uh, you know, news, uh, prolific news stories about issues that are usually centered around constitutional debate. That's exactly right. You know, we really have seen, I laugh because we did talk about back when we used to do movie reviews, uh, there was absolutely a spike in people going to law school when there was the first proliferation of a lot of lawyer shows on TV. And it was, you know, Ally McBeal and that whole generation. Yeah, Austin Legal, uh, LA Law, I think. Exactly. And, and honest to goodness, there was a spike in law school attendance after that. Prior to that, which I think is more likely what we're going to see now, is all through the civil rights movement. You know, we saw spikes in people coming to law school. They saw that law and lawyers were a, the great leveler to bring communities into the 
into the balance and be able to represent community groups and positions, both sides, all sides. And so I think, and I think maybe people will judge after today's show, but I think we're going to see these types of things affecting law school attendance over the next year or two. I think, I think that's right. So what are we going to talk about today? I think we have to, unfortunately, tackle the topic of domestic terrorism, hate crimes, violence, uh, the tragic events in Charlottesville this past week have brought this to the national attention yet again. And more importantly, you know, Stephen, we've many times had the theme of our show be the, the topic of helping people understand the specific laws as divorced from, or actually not divorced, as they relate to the political rhetoric, you know, politics versus law. We did an entire show of that a couple weeks ago. And I think it would be beneficial for us to do that again today, to talk about the laws that are involved going in versus some of the political rhetoric that's been going on. I think that's a great idea, and it's a really good way to take it on, Mitch, because I think there is often a lot of confusion uh, that emanates from statements that are made uh, in a forum in which, uh, let's just say that sometimes uh, issues are not thoroughly vetted before there are official statements released, and that's uh, that's my humble opinion on some of the issues, but... Well, I think that's right, and I'll, I'll, let me be a little more pointed on it. You know, we know we have a president who's not a lawyer. I don't blame him for that. He's not a lawyer. Didn't go to law school. We do have a president who also who, given what you just said, who appears to be willing to make statements that sometimes are not vetted by the many lawyers he is surrounded by, both personal as well as government lawyers, who are there to help him understand how the law applies to -to day-to-day situations. And he seems to be either unwilling or unable to understand those issues. And and that's not a political statement. That's as a lawyer reviewing the statements he makes as they relate to the law. And let me go one step further. I'm very disappointed in the Attorney General, uh, Jeff Sessions. I believe the Attorney General of the United States has an obligation to help the country understand the laws that are going to be applied. And and this week, I believe he too has completely failed in helping us understand those laws. And that's why you and I are going to do it today. Well, Your Honor, or Your Honor, geez, I just elevate, <laughs> wow. did, I, did I just elevate your status? Can I, can I get a mulligan? <laughs> Go right ahead. Well, you know, Mitch, what it, the, what I would offer about Sessions is to say that he's in a position where he must uphold the law. The PR component and the statements that he makes to the public, uh, I think I think it remains to be seen how much vetting there is. You know, that's why I referenced the vetting issue or lack of potential vetting. Uh, so let's take the topic on. Okay, well, let's let's look at what happened. And and again, it's a little it it's there are many parts. And in order to apply the law, I think, as we many times do, we step back and we look at the Constitution. So let's start first applying the Constitution to some of the issues that went on in Charlottesville. Step one, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. So is, was there anything inherently illegal about uh, alt-right Nazi KKK type folks 
marching in the streets of Charlottesville if they had a proper permit to do so? And the simple answer is absolutely not. There was nothing illegal about Americans expressing their right of assembly and their right of free speech. Uh, KKK rallies and marches have been part of the Supreme Court case law since the 1950s, and there's been very little change in that case law. They have the right to march, they have the right to speak, they have the right to assemble, and that's all there is to it. So, so any any claim that legally they were somehow breaking the law by doing it is just not uh, no, someone not being knowledgeable about the con- constitutional law. So would you agree with me so far? On that? I think that's a good, good way to start. So they did seek a permit, and they, they were lawfully assembling in terms of their right to assemble and their obligation to seek permits that were, in fact, issued. Absolutely. Yes. And now the city, it's a little unclear in the confusion. The city appeared to want to move them from one park to another park because of the size of the rally. And, and all of that in the, the midst of a large or more, uh, assembly of people, maybe there had been some minor issues there, but that, but that doesn't change the status of their right. No, it, it doesn't. That's what I would add is that we've talked about the issue of time, place, and manner before when we've talked about the First Amendment and the right to assemble and freedom of speech. That's so right. it, it is true that some uh, requirements can be foisted upon those who wish to assemble via permit in terms of where they can conduct their activities. That's, that's true. And that's the shift over to the government side for safety. So the government can say, it's not safe for that many people to be shoved into this kind of a place, and therefore, we are going to require you to move over there. Uh, Sometimes they can say, it's not safe for a group to march down the middle of a busy street. It's not safe. You must move onto the sidewalk, or you must move into a park. So the government has is just what you said, time, place, manner. They have safety rights to protect the rest of us as well as the marchers and the assemblers themselves. That is true, and that's well-grounded in the U.S. Constitution and then also from an individual state. In this case, it would be the Commonwealth of Virginia. There would be police power that also gives them the right to ensure that uh, assemblies are all conducted safely. That's right. And at the point, just to kind of finish that loop, at any point at which the police believe it's no longer safe or that there are violations of the law, they can disperse the crowd, right? So that falls into the police powers as well, right? It's not an issue of constitutional violating their right of assembly. The safety aspect of it and the police powers of the local police, the sheriff, the state police, that then steps in and allows them to do certain things. Yes, we're off and running. Okay, so let's talk about what they were saying. And we've done an entire program on hate speech before. And it may bother people, but hate speech is not illegal. Hate speech is protected by the U.S. Constitution. We don't have to like the flags they were waving. We don't have to like the uniforms or the armbands or the placards. They can be repugnant to us. They can be hateful, they can be disgusting, they can be whatever you want to describe it, 
that is not illegal. It's and Mitch, by the what I would add, what I would add, and I think it's safe to say this, that uh, I'm sure that we are in harmony on this topic, that it is repugnant conduct, and the fact that uh, the focus should not necessarily shift on the ideals or the tenets of the group that assemble, but instead their right to assemble, quite frankly, makes it really challenging in my opinion, to take these issues on, especially when you've got issues that are so repugnant as the white nationalist flagship or their ideals. That's right. So that's where we distinguish it from legal to political. And that's where a president, a governor, a mayor, any elected uh, official absolutely has the right, and uh, many would claim obligation, from their political position of leadership to represent the beliefs of the electorate. And that's where they should step in, not because they're violations of the law, but because they were elected as representatives to represent policies, ideals, principles of the communities that elected them. And it's perfectly okay, in my mind, to hold an elected official at any level of the government up for scrutiny on whether or not they are reflecting the ideals of the community who elected them, right? So there I've made the distinction between a legal issue and a political issue. And I think this past week, some of those things have been mushed together without clarity. I think that's a good point. So the, the, the next thing we're going to talk about is, is you know, when does hate speech, which is absolutely protected by the Constitution, possibly cross the line into a crime. And we're going to have to do much of that after the break, but, but let's we can, just start We can introduce it a bit, Mitch, and I mean, let's yeah. introduce a, a couple of uh, topics. Um, if it incites violence, there's one of the issues that we're going to expand upon for sure, right? Because what? if the speech is so provocative that it incites violence, or inspires violent reactions, then we've got a scenario where there can be efforts to thwart the conduct, to thwart or stop the assembly. That's exactly right. So as we did in our, as we explained in our prior show, hate speech can cross the line and go from being protected to illegal if it incites, and, and generally the speaking is imminent violence. You can't say, I think you should march in six months and go burn down a house or attack an area. Uh, And that's going to get us into the question of how do you transition that into defining domestic terrorism and the acts of groups. But generally speaking, you just said it perfectly. It's when the speech incites violence and it generally has to be imminent violence, then it's no longer protected. That's right. So that's a good way of introducing it, Mitch. And when we come back from the break, we'll expand upon some of those topics that relate to the First Amendment, the right to assemble, and all of the issues connected with that, including what conduct can or cannot uh, occur by way of intervention. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, this is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the tragic events in the Commonwealth of Virginia and Charlottesville specifically. And Mitch, before the break, we were segueing into the topic of when the right to assemble and engage in free speech rises to a level where violent activity results. That's right. And I think that's where, as you mentioned, the tragic part, obviously, there was a death, which is always a tragedy here of, a, of an innocent bystander on the street uh, and there serious injuries that have, have yet to been resolved. So let's talk about action. So you, you helped us understand hateful speech is not illegal per se. It could be illegal when speech then crosses the line to incite violence. So one might ask whether some of the organizers of the Charlottesville event incited 
the violence that happened. I haven't heard anybody attempting to make that connection yet, but that would have to be made in order to have the the, the white supremacy leaders, groups, speakers have some sense of liability. At the moment, I would argue that it appears to me they're protected under freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Not the people who actually wielded clubs and placards and pushed and and threw stuff and used chemical sprays. That's criminal behavior. So, so help us a little on the criminal behavior part. We, we actually have, if I understand, a charge of of second-degree murder with a vehicle, mayhem, and bodily injury charges. So those aren't unusual crimes. I mean, that's an unusual setting, but I mean, the definition of those crimes come right out of the statute book, right? They do, Mitch, and I think it's interesting to note that much of the controversy and discussion will very well center around whether that act, that conduct, of uh, driving the vehicle into counter-protesters and, uh, sadly, tragically, uh, leading to one death and several numerous injuries, I think 18 to 19 seriously injured individuals, uh, will that be cast or described as connected in some way to the initial assembly? Uh, And I think it raises the issue of kind of a nexus issue or concern you, you are correct in identifying the fact that there are numerous statutes that would apply uh, that would give rise to charges against the individual who drove the car. My practice is to not share a name of an individual. Uh, but th- there are second-degree murder charges uh, very likely pending. You mentioned mayhem. Uh, the driving of a car and aiming it at pedestrians or uh, bystanders is going to be, in my opinion, without question, wanton, willful disregard for human life, which is a second-degree murder-type theory, certainly in California. and the Commonwealth of Virginia, I think they also have various degrees of murder and theories by which an individual can be charged. So the act of driving a vehicle, which is, by definition, a, a deadly weapon, and that's pretty much across the board. I think all states recognize that a vehicle, although not designed as a weapon, certainly would qualify as a deadly weapon. So that would be one of the theories that would be utilized for a second-degree murder charge. And then the other counts uh, for the individuals who are injured are going to vary from degrees of aggravated battery to, as you mentioned, mayhem, which it is a charge when there's some kind of disfigurement or really very, very serious injuries. So you've helped us understand in the past that these, these are crimes that require intent, right? We're not saying that there was an accidental driving of the car into a crowd. So it's the intent that, that starts to make the elements of these crimes, right? And And so I want you to talk a little about that because that then becomes the possible bridge, I think a weak one, but the possible bridge of whether or not we describe this as a hate crime or domestic terrorism. Yeah, no, Mitch, I like the way you you set that up, and that's why I raised that nexus issue. So you, you did effectively take the bait, and I'm glad you did, because often there's going to be a focus on motive, and I really think that's where you're going in, in introducing that. Uh, was the uh, intention 
to actually strike, harm, potentially kill counter-protesters. In other words, is there evidence to support that the motive of the driver uh, who ran in and mowed down all these individuals was connected to the counter-protesters and what they were doing? So that's where, so that so you can make the crime with or without who he was. Uh, there's been a lot made of the claims that he was a a, a Nazi, a neo-Nazi sympathizer, a white supremacist. There's uh, been discussion of that in his history. So that would that could go to the element of motive, correct? Absolutely. That, uh, but then it really again gets to that next step, which is. Did he intend to use the car to do the things you just described? So that also is part of the intent, correct? It, it is, Mitch, and that also gives rise to a potential theory, a culpability theory that would uh, possibly be based upon intent to kill. In okay. other words, the act of driving the vehicle and intentionally aiming it in the direction of individuals could demonstrate the mens rea, the mental state, that qualifies as intent to kill. So in California, we use things like use of a deadly weapon to support that there was an intent to kill. Because if we, as we've discussed many times, Mitch, we're really looking at trying to fill the thought bubble of the bad actor when we talk about mental state. How do we establish whether it was an intent to actually kill or do serious bodily injury? individuals. While it may seem patently obvious to most people that driving a car in the direction of people shows an intent to kill, there's a requirement that you establish that there was actual um, um, actual mental state to do that. And that's the, that's the connection to, I think, as you raised, um, the fact that uh, this bad actor, the driver of the vehicle, may have actually been uh, pro-white nationalists or had a position like that. Okay, so I think that's very helpful, and it, it again, it it may seem like we're trying to be picky as to the law, but if you want to apply the law and have you know, the the criminal law apply, have it proven in a, a court of law, and have the sentencing that the judge will need to justify within the law, all of these dots must be covered. So let's go one step further and say. Would this qualify as a hate crime? So I think it's important to understand that the hate crime aspect isn't a measure of who the actor is, although that's an element, as you said, bad actor. We have to bring in the element of who the target is, because isn't that the critical aspect of crossing the line for an enhancement to get it from being second degree murder to an enhancement for a hate crime? It, it, is, it is, Mitch, but there is a two-pronged component to it. So there's a defendant-suspect focus and a victim focus. You're right to point that out in terms of status of the victim. There's no doubt that that is uh, a very, very major focal point. In other words, suspect classes, groups of people that are routinely uh, ridiculed, uh, and have really a history of being victims based upon their tenants, beliefs, status. We've talked about gender, sexual orientation, religion, uh, religion, 
those are those are classes that have been statutorily defined as qualifying really as uh, suspect classes or classes of individuals that are in a vulnerable position. But then there is a focus also on the suspect and, and his or her motives, typically. So, you know, by your introducing the fact that this uh, 20-year-old driver of the vehicle may have actually had a white nationalist sentiment or been pro Nazi or whatever information comes out to suggest that he was supportive uh, of of the group that was initially uh, seeking to assemble, and then based on what I've seen thus far, it does appear that that vehicle was aimed at a group of counter protesters. So then the question becomes: Is the category of counter protester going to qualify in the second prong you talked about? It sounds like on the threshold. Again, we don't have any more facts than the everybody else who's read the newspaper and listened to the news. Uh, but as, assuming that that first prong can be met, that it appears that there are elements of the, the bad actor's belief system that motivated his behavior, then we have to say, is the status of a of a anti-protester a protected class? Does that trigger hate? You know, Mitch, that's that's one of the most thought-provoking questions, I think, that centers around this. Uh, we've focused on the white supremacists or the group that were initially assembling that in, in, in all estimations and reports that that's obviously what inspired counter-protesting. So the issue of whether counter-protesters uh, can also be somehow classified as a group of individuals that qualify under hate crime statutes or uh, suspect classes is a very intriguing issue. Very intriguing issue. Yeah, and the, it's we we will see more and hear more about this. But just from the standpoint of what I've read so far, again, in in looking at it from a legal, not a political standpoint, obviously none of us are going to say it's okay for a person to to mow down people with a car intentionally, regardless of of their motivation. In this case, to enhance it as a hate crime, I, I am always cautious of using things like hate crime and domestic terrorism for the political reasons. And again, we go back to that distinction between law and politics. It's clearly an inflammatory political position to take. But as lawyers, we need to peel that away, and I would have hoped and have yet to see the Attorney General help us do that, peel away the difference and say, okay, let the, let the police and the district attorney make the, mur- the second-degree murder charge. We see those factors. But let's help remember to understand that if he just mowed into counter-protesters, they don't appear to have been targeted because of race, religion, sexual orientation, national origin. I mean, it's really... Hard to find how just plowing into a group of people on the sidewalk. I agree, agree, Mitch. Absolutely. I mean, look at the group of the counter-protesters. And I mean, far be it from us to profile all of them. The motives for the counter-protesters must have been very widespread. In other words, there could have been visceral reaction to the mere sight of white nationalists. There could have been a number of things that inspired 
so-called counter-protesters to gather. All which is constitutional as well, because they have the same rights. They have the right to assemble. They have the right to speak. They have the right to have their speech be uh, outrageous if they want. It can be strong. It can be forceful. It can be threatening as long as it's not threatening imminent violence, right? Yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, Mitch, I think, you know, what we should do is shift a little bit to the topic of maybe some gaps in the law in the area that you referenced previously. And that would be uh, the fact that there may not be uh, a, a domestic terror theory by which uh, to proceed. Yeah, so I'd like to, as we get ready to go into this break, kind of wrap up this piece to have people think hard about the fact that hateful behavior, hateful speech, isn't, by definition, a hate crime. And if we want the protection of hate crime statutes, we should be more, we should be particular, we should be careful to use it appropriately. Because even when you take that away, as you've reminded us in the past, that doesn't diminish the criminality. If you're proving second-degree murder, mayhem, vehicular homicide, all of those other things, it's, it's still there on the books. The behavior is still a crime. It's still going to be prosecuted at the fullest level that's appropriate. But I don't like seeing things then muddied in the legal world by the politics of it. That's, that's where the distinction. So let's expand on that when we get back from the break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. 
That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about the horrific and tragic acts in Charlottesville, Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. And Mitch, uh, we want to take a turn and, and talk about potential gaps in the law. I think that's a topic you wanted to take on. I think you're right, Stephen. So let's talk a little about what the Attorney General said. He, he started discussing issues related to whether this was or wasn't an act of domestic terrorism. And why does that matter? Why do those words matter? And you and I talk a lot about the fact that words matter. They matter in laws. They matter in statutes. They matter in prosecution. They, they represent standards. Uh, it's, you, you shouldn't just throw these terms around, in my opinion, without offering some assistance in understanding them. So let's, you and I, help the, our listeners understand this a little better, even if the Attorney General didn't choose to do so. So he threw around the idea that maybe this is an act of domestic terrorism. Well, as you said, it's only a crime if it's on the books. So Section 802 of the USA Patriot Act, which is a federal law, expanded the definition of terrorism to cover domestic terrorism. It's, it contrasts it with international terrorism. And it basically says that a person engages in domestic terrorism if they do an act that is, quote, dangerous to human life, that is a violation of the criminal laws of a state or the United States. And they go on to say, if the act appears to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and additionally the act, uh, it goes to have to be primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. All right? So, those are fairly broad definitions. What it doesn't do is then say, if you do any of those things, it of itself, under the Patriot Act, is now a criminal act that could be charged under federal law. What it does is gives the, the federal government the right to investigate. You know, Mitch, I, I like the way you started there by referencing international terrorism, which of course is the spirit behind the Patriot Act. Then we move in to... Uh, or, or focus more on what I think was sometimes called homegrown terrorism or domestic terrorism. And as I listen to you describe those definitions or the conduct 
my margin note, literally, was fraught with ambiguity. Right. And, and therein lies the problem, and I think that's what we wanted to talk about, because there are potential gaps in the law, and as most of our listeners know, there is a notice requirement and a precision requirement anytime a law is codified. It needs to be precise. It needs to place people on notice of what exactly is being criminalized, what conduct's being criminalized. And that's right. And so we, there was an article published this morning, it updated the Southern Poverty Law Center's report that they track on hate groups. And they updated it to say that there's in their database for the folks they're tracking, they believe there are 917 hate groups in the United States. And they have their definition of, of what qualifies as a hate group. But we need to be reminded that the fact that it's a hate group in and of itself is not illegal and doesn't violate any crime until they then take action that then violates an actual statute. So a domestic terrorist group might be defined as one of those hate groups if it triggers one of the standards that we just read, I just read under the Patriot Act. It would give the federal government the right to investigate, and if they want to go past uh, things they're investigating in the public sector, you know, I've talked about it before. They're going to have to go to a judge, right? They're going to have to get a warrant, and they're going to have to prove that there's some standard that's been met to allow them to then go one step further, right? You helped us understand that before. Yeah, I agree with that, Mitch, and I think what we might be talking about here is resource allocation, believe it or not. In other words, if there is conduct that rises to the level of potential or perceived domestic terrorism, the statutes that go on to define domestic terrorism really provide a platform by which investigators, government agents, can pursue investigative uh, techniques and I think what the outgrowth of a lot of that ends up being traditional criminal acts that, like we've talked about, murder, mayhem, uh, all traditional kind of criminally defined acts. Could even go to the federal laws against sedition. I mean, you could, you could, you know, uh, acts against the government itself. Uh, You could be brought into federal court. It could be investigated. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so what we see is that the, the discussion of, it, was this an act of domestic terrorism? Uh, honestly, the, the, the Attorney General's comment then said, but we will step back and let local authorities uh, take their steps first. So your conversation about investigation is exactly right. So the, they're going, the, the police are going to investigate the it as if there were just as if any other crime alleging second degree murder, right? And they'll get warrants if they need to. They will collect witness statements. They will collect information that will help them define, as you said, the mens rea of the the alleged perpetrator. Uh, my worry on all this is that 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 is exactly where this needs to go, and calling this domestic terrorism. I don't see yet where that's helped anything. Well, you know, my theme is, is that just a political 
statement, not really a legal statement. Yeah, I see. I think I see where you're going. In other words, the label of domestic terrorism may not result in a clean statutory definition. And I think your point might be that it, it is instead political speak. Is that is that where you're going? Well, right. Because do the do the local police? You know, we've talked about it. there are there are crimes in which as you said, resource allocation, they are bigger, deeper, they go multiple states, they might go to other countries, and the resources of the local Charlottesville Police Department might be inadequate to reach that far. And having the federal government, the FBI, help you would be of great assistance, right? Yeah. I I just don't see that here. So my question is, why does the Attorney General bring this forward? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, Mitch. I don't know how to answer that question. And, you know, by way of history and something that I will introduce, Mitch, and we, I, I saw this in my preparation. I'm thinking now of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. Sure. It's a pretty good example to illustrate what you were talking about in terms of what crimes are actually charged ultimately. In other words, what were the crimes that were charged that led to the execution of Timothy McVeigh? And if you go back to look at that, which I think we'd all agree has got to be one of the worst acts of terrorism, I think, ever. And that was in 19, was it 94, 95, 1995, I think. Uh, He was actually charged with the killing of federal agents. There was no formal charge at that point of domestic terrorism. Yeah, and, and then you go to even more recent where you, the, the question could be, is it a federal civil rights violation? Because okay, that sometimes comes out of these types of investigations. And when Dylan Root uh, murdered the individuals in the church, and the question was, you know, was that an enhancement of a hate crime? Was it a terrorist act? And bringing in the federal investigation gave the option of saying it could not only be a local violation, it could be a federal violation of civil rights, which could enhance the penalties, bring a whole different set of charges. Yeah. Yes. I get that. And, and I think that's a really valuable part of what the Patriot Act provided. Yeah. As far as, uh, looking for a definition of domestic terrorism that could ever rise to, a level of being defined statutorily or actually passing through the legislative process to actually develop a law. I just wanted to remind our listeners that laws need to be understandable. They need to be precise. They cannot be vague. They can't be overbroad. They cannot be ambiguous. So I think those are the issues that are most challenging uh, if there is going to be an effort to codify domestic terrorism. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there had been quite a bit written about the Patriot Act that, that says it, there are portions of it that do not appear to have the level of specificity that you just talked about. Because if you're going to really take action, get a warrant, bring charges, it, it has to be specific. I mean, that is circling all the way back around to where we started. We can be unhappy with people. We can disagree with them. We, they, their acts can be repugnant. The groups can be hateful. They can even be organized for hateful purposes. Their language can be just beyond the pale of any civil discourse. But the Constitution of the United States says 
we have the right of assembly and we have the right of free speech. It, I'm, I'm bringing this right back around to where we started the conversation today, Stephen, which is that it needs to cross a line of criminality that, as you just pointed out, is well-defined within the statutes that allows police, prosecutors, judges, and juries to dot the I's, cross the T's, define the crime, find the guilt, and assess the penalty, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Mitch, I just wanted to loop back, if I can, to clarify on, I made a point about resource allocation in connection with uh, having an actual crime called domestic terrorism. What I really meant by that is that if there's efforts to define domestic terrorism with any degree of precision, what it would probably result in would be giving rise to probable cause, lawful probable cause for investigators to go on to investigate and to employ tactics aimed at getting behind things like motive and reasons behind certain horrific or bad acts. That, that's where I was going with it. Yeah, and I think that's a great reminder. And so I'd like to you know, let's wrap this up with the theme, again, we started with, is I think it's fair to say that what we're watching going on here on the national stage this past week is a combination of politics and law. Uh, I don't think there's any way around it. The, the reaction to the president's statements about what went on in Charlottesville is not an issue of law. I think it's strictly limited to being an issue of politics and the, the response of business individuals and other organizations and even, you know, a long list of Republicans as well as Democrats. I mean, the president may have truly found a bipartisan theme that he struck here. Um, but those are all politics. And I, I don't want, I guess my point is I just hate to see it muddy the understanding of the constitutional protections we have are when actions violate crimes, and then we want the government to take action. Yeah, well said, Mitch. I think the collision between politics and law is a topic that we can probably speak about for the duration of Wagner and Winnick on the law. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully what we've done today is, is, is do what we set out to do, which is help tease out the legal questions, the legal issues of items that come before us in the national news. Uh, hopefully we've been helpful today in doing that and distinguishing what are the legal issues that are going to develop here in Charlottesville as both the local and possibly the federal government gets involved. And then leave the politics for other radio shows because that's what they need to do. It's perfectly legitimate, but it's a different set of arguments. Yeah, I would agree with that. So thanks, Stephen. Great conversation. Hopefully we've been helpful to everyone as we always try to do or strive to do here on Wagner and Winnick on the Law. A reminder that you can hear an archive of today's show at voiceamerica.com business channel or at wagnerandwinnick.com. As we remind you each week as we end the show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Louise, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.